Good morning, and you are listening to Action Line. I am your host, Jordan Lewis, and joining me in the studio, I have Fire Chief Rich Etheridge from Capital City Fire and Rescue. How you doing? I'm good. Thank you, Jordan. I was going to say, I mean, I don't see there being a fire risk outside. It's pretty wet. Yeah, it's the benefit of living in a rainforest. We don't have the fire problems the rest of the state has. That is very true. Now, I would like to open up with you actually haven't had too many calls for that as of late. And I think that's, I mean, I imagine that's probably pretty refreshing. Yeah, it's nice uh, in our business. You know, it kind of peaks and flows. It's, you know, things don't come in in a steady stream. It's like we get big bursts of things. And, you know, we could have a quiet afternoon all day. And then all of a sudden we get five calls back to back. And um, so it's, you know, just kind of managing chaos from time to time. So when there is a lull, we really kind of, you know, use that to get caught up on stuff. No, definitely. And I'll be sure to knock on wood later to not jinx the situation, <laughs> especially because, I mean, it is July next month. So oh, man, yes, very much so. That'll, that'll be its own whole deal. Now, there are a couple of things I did want to talk to you about. But first of all, you mentioned before we started the show today that you guys have been doing a lot of training lately. So what's been going on there? Yeah, we've had some really cool stuff going on. Uh, we just had two of our chiefs down in Phoenix, Arizona, and took a specialized class in uh, uh, incident command. And they focused on like the big box stores. So if, uh, you know, like the U-Haul building or Costco or one of those big stores were on fire that, uh, you know, we've got, you know, the most current, you know, techniques and, and abilities to deal with that stuff and that stuff translates down into our smaller buildings as well uh, we just finished up a hazardous materials technician class so a bunch of our folks just got certified to, to go deal with the the mop and glow the the white powders and those types of things so uh, that'll that'll be a big boost to our uh, hazmat team uh, tomorrow we've got uh uh, our EMS officer and two of our volunteers going to Prince of Wales Island. Uh, the, the regional Southeast uh, EMS symposium is going on all week. And so everybody from Southeast gets to get together and share information. And they bring in doctors from all over the country to talk about the, the latest in emergency medicine. So it's really cool to do that on uh, Prince of Wales where they don't have a ton of resources and everybody's, you know, in bed and breakfast or sleeping in fire station floors. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a unique opportunity. Sort of that... But, that peak small Alaska town. Oh, totally. Yeah. Because hearing you describe that kind of makes me think back to uh, the Petersburg. And I mean, while they do have their their whole fire station, they got places in there. Because I actually did a tour of their fire station. It kind of reminds me just of that, you know, that peak small town where you're like, you got a couple of folks, but not a whole lot otherwise. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And then the last two big ones we got going on is uh, uh, here in about a week and a half or so, uh, we've got a uh, mine rescue class going on. Um, that one's more of an informational thing for us because we have a lot more people exploring mine shafts and we've got no experience in doing any kind of rescue stuff there. So we just need to know what is it we don't know. And, uh, you know, our, our big plan is to, to call the local mine companies and, and, you know, if there is an incident, see if they can help out because we're definitely not certified or qualified to, to go into a mine where somebody's already gotten in trouble. So, um, yeah, we're, we're trying to find out, you know, what's out there that we need to be aware of so that we can make, you know, ask better questions and get the right resources. And our final class is a uh, confined space rescue class, uh, which combines the hazardous materials, the mine rescue, and uh, gets folks certified so that they can go in like our manholes and, uh, you know, big cylinders and tanks around town where people do cleaning projects. So somebody gets asphyxiated that will have folks that could actually go in, get them out safely and not become a victim themselves. Gotcha. And it's interesting to hear about the mining because with Southeast as a region, it's I think it's surprising that I haven't heard of anyone really doing that sort of caving type 
exploration, really until now that you've just brought it up, it's kind of something that's always kind of lingered in the back of my mind. I'm like, I'm sure that's a thing that people would do in Southeast, but I haven't actually heard of that happening until you just brought that up. Yeah, there's some small groups that, that kind of explore the whole area. And, uh, and you know, there's mine shafts that people just don't know about. And, it, you know, somebody could fall into them or, um, you know, some of them are boarded up and people kind of force their way in. and They just want to go explore and see what's in them. Gotcha. And, that, and hearing that part makes me think of like urbex, which I know that's not a big thing down here, I wouldn't think, because there's not too many abandoned buildings to go explore in Juneau these days. No, yeah, I think property values are just so high that you don't get a ton of, of vacant buildings, so they don't sit for too terribly long. Gotcha. Now, I, I am curious, sort of, maybe could you explain a bit more of the sort of the, the, the hazmat stuff, like that sure. aspect of it? Yeah, Juno's kind of a unique community uh, with all of our shipping companies. Um, we get stuff that's going out to the mines um, all, all over the state. Um, you know, we can't ship a lot of things by air, so they end up coming up on our barge lines. And sometimes we'll have products that, that uh, you know, burst into flames when they uh, contact with water. And so, you know, and being in Southeast Alaska, it's really nice to be able to kind of plan for those kind of things. Uh, a lot of explosives come through town. Um, and it's been a while, but uh, we got a lot of white powder uh, calls to different uh, government buildings around around town and um you know it, there's always a threat that, that could be some kind of ricin or something like that and so we treat every one of those as it could seriously be a, a an actual you know biological terrorist incident um you know so far they've all been hoaxes but uh it's one of those you just don't want to take chances because the one time you blow it off and, and don't treat it right that would be the one that that it was actually something so right i'll have to write that down as a term in the newsroom now i haven't heard that term too much of a white powder call okay and then maybe break down some of the some of the mines sort of that training aspect of it. what looks at how's it look for the mining training sure uh, a lot of the stuff that you really have to be concerned about is is the air because people are going into mines without uh air packs on and so there's all kinds of sulfurs and and uh, gases and uh, oxygen depleted areas uh, so, it, you know, if you get into the right situation, you know, you could, uh, you know, lose consciousness. Um, then we've got a lot of, uh, you know, hard rock uh, mines around. And so, you know, big chunks of rock can fall. Um, you know, things have been set and pretty undisturbed for years. And uh, if you get in there uh, messing around with stuff, you know, you could cause, you know, sections and pieces and parts to collapse. And um, that's that's one area we definitely have no expertise in and you know <laughs> we definitely have to rely on our uh, local partners like greens creek or, or kensington to to come in and if they can't do the rescue that they could help get the resources that could do the rescues and um, but yeah there's there's just so many unknowns and shafts that are thousand feet plus uh, long so um, you know, we don't have enough rope to rappel down a thousand feet and, um, you know, our air packs, they only, you know, last for like 45 minutes. And sometimes you take that long just to get to, to where an incident is underground. So, um, you know, they have stuff like supplied air and things like that to keep their rescuers safe. So it's definitely a very specialized field that's way outside of our scope. Gotcha. And I would say for any listeners that are sort of curious about sort of those types of rescues, I'm sure you can find stuff about that online. Unfortunately, I know many stories of where that is not successful that you can find <laughs> online, as I am very much into these sorts of true story aspects of things. So if you do want to learn more about that, there are definitely stories you can find online. 
just do your due diligence is what I always say, especially like if you want to do these sorts of activities, if you want to go exploring these older mine shafts, just be safe, take proper precautions, do your research ahead of time. That is always what I would advise. Yeah. And most of the mines around here are private property. So, um, you know, going into them definitely is high risk, but you're also trespassing in, in many cases. So make sure that you find out, you know, who owns it before you just go kind of spelunking along and, and check things out because you, you, you'd hate to get in trouble on top of... Uh, you know, having a good time. So also throw in your legal research. Absolutely. <laughs> You're going to hit every branch at this point. <laughs> at some point. I mean, that's when, and then speaking of other branches, that leads perfectly into sort of what is the EMS training looking like? Uh, EMS training, um, we do quite a bit uh, on a continual basis. Uh, one of our big focuses is uh, refining our CPR uh, calls. Um, you know, we've had a, a pretty high success rate at uh, reviving people. Um, uh, when they go into cardiac arrest and we kind of run that like a pit crew that everybody has a specific job and you know everybody you know has a, a specific rotation so you only do chest compressions for two minutes and then somebody re- relieves you to and we have just a constant string of people moving in to do chest compressions and one person that just manages the airway uh, and then one person just overseeing everything and deciding okay here's the medications that we're using and um, but uh, everybody has a very specific role and everything's uh, very calculated out so that uh, we have the highest success rates possible. And, and we're constantly you know, working with uh, different groups, trying to learn what's the next best thing we could be trying and, and, and doing different to, to get an even higher success rate. Okay. And I do want to ask, so with that, having people rotate on doing compressions, is that to make sure you have a constant stream without anyone getting exhausted? Mm-hmm. So I do have that right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, we also have a device now. Um, it's called a Lucas device, and basically it's an automated chest compressor. And so it just straps on around someone's chest, and then it's got a, uh, an electronic you know, uh, arm that, that does the chest compression. So um, that never gets tired, and you just swap batteries out um, you know, if it's a prolonged rescue. Um, but uh, that really helps out. But, you know, it's technology and those aren't 100 percent. So we have to make sure that everybody's you know up to speed and we have people there and ready, you know, if they need to do the compressions manually. Gotcha. Well, we are going to move into our break. When we come back, I'm going to talk to you a bit more about those like those big box store fires and then also talking about the importance of your smoke alarms. You are listening to Action Line on KINY. Welcome back to Action Line. I am still your host, Jordan Lewis. And joining me, I still have Fire Chief Rich Etheridge from Capital City Fire and Rescue. Now, during the first half, we were talking a lot about some of the different trainings that are going on with CCFR. The one I want to talk to you about now is the the big box store fires. So what is some of the protocol that would go into that? Because I imagine that could be a bit trickier because not only are you having to, I think the biggest part would be locating where exactly in a location that big the fire is started at. Yeah, uh, big box stores are way different than our, our normal structures that we deal with because the buildings are built to protect themselves from fire and uh, firefighters can really mess up the systems that are, that are in place. So um, they have very large sprinkler systems and basically what they're designed to do is build a cone around where the fire is and let it burn the material out. So if we can't see into the building, uh, we're not supposed to send firefighters in at that point because the sprinkler system is doing the work uh, and, and it cools the smoke so the smoke stays down pretty low so um, you pretty much kind of let that portion burn out Um, but uh, they all have uh, 
uh, external connections on the building where we connect our fire engines to to help support the the sprinkler system and put even more water in there uh, a lot of the buildings have uh, fire pumps um, so it's basically a built-in fire engine uh, to deal with that stuff but they also have things like uh, automatic roof vents that pop open or the uh, skylights shrink and fall out to, to help get the hot smoking gases out um, like our uh, Costco building, they've got uh, what they call smoke curtains. So if you look up as you're walking through there, there's these long uh, metal corrugated sheets that are hanging up. And, and, you know, they're pretty unnoticeable, but they're designed. So if something is burning and the smoke rises, it fills up that compartment and it's not spreading out throughout the entire building. But, uh, you know, big box stores are dangerous because they have lots of really tall shelves and a ton of stuff. So, um if there is heat, you know, it does cause the metal to expand and shelving to collapse. And so, you know, that can kind of cut firefighters off from their hoses and, and things like that. So that's why we've got, you know, fire lanes all the way around the buildings and multiple doors around the buildings so that we never get more than 150 or 200 feet into a, a building because they're, they're, they're a high-risk operation. Um, but fortunately, they do a lot of design work to, to minimize the, the potential risks. Okay. And I think it's interesting to hear that you guys wouldn't get involved until it's, you know the, the flames have gotten to an exterior level because I think, and you know, I know this is how I would think of that situation. My brain, and I would assume that you would go in because there's a fire anyway, but to hear that that's not the case and that you're relying more on the systems in place for the building is interesting. Yeah, and if for some reason the systems fail, then we have to, you know, kind of revert back to, you know, some of the other techniques and and, and we'll go in and try and put the fire out if, if we've got some visibility. But, uh, you know, big box stores, they're, you know, they're, they burn down around the country all the time and a lot of places you know you know the walmarts of, of the world you know you burn a walmart down they could have a walmart up in, in no time to, to restock it or if they just lose the material in it you know if they've got trucking they can be back in business just in a few weeks but uh you know for us to lose like a grocery store or something like that that would be a much bigger deal um because you know shipping and getting materials and stuff here it just doesn't work like it does down south so gotcha and now to sort of segue from there, I noticed earlier today that CCFR did an update on your Facebook page about smoke alarms. So what's going on there? Yeah, um, the Red Cross is doing a fantastic program uh, where they'll actually come out and help uh, put put smoke detectors and smoke alarms in, in everybody's homes. Um, we get grants to do that from time to time. Uh, Red Cross, fortunately, is able to do that right now. Um, you know, if, if we get grant money in the future, we'll be doing it. But uh Right now, if people want to get a hold of the local Red Cross office and talk to them about, you know, what your needs are and, and make a, an appointment to get somebody to come out and help you out, um, smoke detectors definitely save lives. Um, you know, we see it all the time that uh, people take their smoke detectors down because of whatever reason the, the, the cooking set it off and it was just annoying or it goes off all the time. Um, those are the ones where people get out at the very last minute or they don't uh, survive the house fires. So uh, if you're having fire alarm problems or smoke detector problems in your home and it goes off, give us a call. We're happy to come, you know, help brainstorm some ideas to, to reduce that, that from happening because they do save lives. And most of the fires that we go to, for some reason, there is no smoke detector in the house. And we've given out thousands of them around our community. So, yeah. Um, you know, yeah, they, they work. Um, we can't say enough about them. Get them with a 10-year battery in it so you don't even have to think about changing batteries. Um, but uh, they're not that expensive anymore. And, you know, we've got groups like the Red Cross that are out there willing to even come to your home and put them in there. It's that important to do. 
No, definitely. I was going to say, I'm in that camp of, I'm cooking, and sometimes I'll take it down, but I always make sure I put it back up when I'm done. Yeah. That's something I always make sure I do. And all three of mine went off, because I do live in a very small apartment. So it doesn't take <laughs> very long for them to all start dinging. I'm like, all right. I know. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And uh, the code says that you're supposed to have one in the hallway outside the bedrooms and one inside each of your sleeping rooms. And sometimes it's just a matter of moving the smoke detector a little bit better location to to prevent that from occurring. And you just got to look at kind of the, the air paths and in your house. And, you know, maybe it is just kind of crack a window open or it, it is relocating the smoke detector. Yeah. And I know mine are all where they're supposed to be. It's just unfortunately all of the... The, the the smell of oh, slightly overcooked meat kind of carried, <laughs> but okay. And so I also know you want to talk a little bit about you know open burns. We are in the summer now; those are going to happen a bit more. Definitely, um, yeah. We we are seeing an uh, increase in open burning going around our community. Um, we do get a lot of open burning complaints. I mean, we get hundreds of them every year, and uh, most of the time. You know, it's just going up to the the person that's doing the open burning and let them know, hey, your neighbors are complaining that you're creating too much smoke. And then we'll coach them on how to, you know, reduce the amount of smoke coming off their fire. Um, A few times a year, we have to shut shut burns down when they're burning like wet spruce that's just not going to stop smoking. Um, But, uh, you know, most of the time people are pretty receptive. If you go up and knock on the door and say, hey, you're really smoking my house out. You know, people are pretty willing to, to try and adjust what they're doing or wait for a, for a better day to burn. Um, but uh, there's, there's so much more open burning going on uh, this year that uh, we really want to encourage people to try and, you know, pay attention to the smoke. It might look like it's going straight up from your fire, but uh, it cools off and banks down onto your neighbors pretty quickly after that. So um, be a good neighbor uh, before calling 911 or, or the office line. Um, you know, go knock on a door and just tell them, hey, you know, just, just so you know, you're smoking our house out. And, uh, you know, that a lot of times you can do something pretty simple to, to change the amount of smoke that you're producing. Gotcha. And then I do also want to make sure I offer you this opportunity because I don't know what time I'll be having you on next month. But obviously, as I'm sure everyone knows, next month will be the 4th of July. (laughs) And with 4th of July comes its own whole host of fire awareness. Yeah, definitely. Um, Especially if if we have a dry 4th of July, um, you know, people shooting fireworks into the brush, you know, that's definitely a hazard for us. Um, You know, we've had a few small brush fires from from that type of thing. But, uh, you know, be really considerate about your fireworks use. Um, You know, the city's been really generous about allowing fireworks for specific days. Uh, Try and be a good neighbor and don't let off these giant booms, you know, in residential neighborhoods. You know, go out the road to the beaches, you know, to, to... to places where you're not impacting folks but uh fireworks injuries are, are massive um you know we don't fortunately don't get a ton of them but when they do happen they're they're pretty catastrophic for that person so um you know just be safe with the fireworks um you know be a good neighbor um you know everybody wants to celebrate and have a good time but uh you know you know you know be kind with your fireworks <laughs> be kind be considerate those sorts of things absolutely Okay. Well, we've got, it looks like, about a minute left. So do you have any big closing comments you want to throw in here? Yeah. Fourth uh, of July is coming up. Uh, it's a really busy time for us. we got a ton of people out in the community doing a ton of stuff. Um, you know, pre-plan if you're out on the water, up on the trails, you know, be prepared for some self-rescue and taking care of yourself. Because, uh, you know, if, if you twist an ankle or something out on a trail, it takes some time for us to get to you. So 
be dressed for the weather, have some food, have some communication. Um, you know, these these small injuries and, and things like that, they don't have to be catastrophic with a little bit of preparation. All righty. Well, Fire Chief Etheridge, I'd like to thank you for coming on. It's always interesting to hear from you about what's going on with CCFR. I'm very interested in a lot of those trainings. I might have to keep an eye on those and see how those continue to progress. But then also throwing in those safety tips ahead of the 4th of July because I'm like I said, I'm not sure the next time I'll be able to get you on. So I want to make sure we get that in there beforehand. But yeah, no, thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me today. All righty. You have been listening to Action Line on KINY.